Welcome to another episode of the Roseland Podcast. I'm Chloe, your host, and as this podcast goes live on the anniversary of D-Day, and you all enjoyed the VE Day episode so much, we're all about D-Day today. If this is the first episode you're listening to, you can find and listen to the podcast at rosenpodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on all the other podcast apps. And at rosenpodcast.com, you'll also find links to any resources that we mention. The St Just and St Moore's Heritage Group have been focusing their researching might on how D-Day and World War II affected St Moore's. So to find out more, I had a chat with their chairman, Chris Williams. Hi, Chris. Hi, Chloe. Uh, So it's really cool to have you on the show. And I wanted to ask you about, because I know you you and the group have been doing an awful lot of research about this recently, about how D-Day affected St Moore's. Yes, um... Well, thank you, Chloe. Uh, you've heard from Peter Newman now all about the D-Day um, operation from Tolburn and uh, Turnaware. Um, but probably a lot of people don't know that many of the officers and American and Canadian troops that were billeted on the Roseland actually um, were billeted in St. Moore's. Um, they arrived in August 1943 with a lot of landing craft. And the personnel, which consisted of um, 25 officers, 60 boat crews, that's 240 men, and 67 admin staff. They were billeted, some of them, in the Ship and Castle and Idle Rocks hotels and in various houses. By November of that year, more crews and officers had arrived and suddenly... 700 U.S. naval personnel were living in St. Moore's. That would have been a huge percentage of the population, wouldn't it? Like a massive percentage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think our resident population at the moment, I mean, the voting population is something like 850. I know it was a lot more then because there was something over 100 children in the school, but, um, you know, 700 on top of this, it must have doubled the population. Yeah. And their mission, the reason they were here, was to assemble, maintain, and operate a flotilla of landing craft and to give training to the crews in handling those boats. And they were preparing for the invasion of the beaches in France. Now, obviously, um, all of those people could not fit into the Shipping Castle and the Idle Rocks Hotel, so along came... The U.S. Battalion, uh, the 29th Naval Construction Battalion, and they built within just a few weeks a small town on the fields above Freshwater Lane. This included a camp for 661 men, which consisted of a lot of knitting huts, I think, um, recreation buildings and armory for all the um, guns and bombs and explosives that they had, a dance hall, a hospital station, shops, storehouses, gun mounts, a water supply, and other utilities, presumably electricity, etc. And um, they also built a pontoon out into the river at Polvar. Um, the American Red Cross were here as well, and they provided a reading room in Pomery's garage, just where Brenda Pye used to live. Um, also, uh, St. Moore's Pier, the Quay, and the Harbour were designated as a U.S. Naval Amphibious Training Subbase. That's a mouthful, 
business. <laughs> and weather permitting, at low tide, they they took turns in hand, you know, practicing handling exercises with these six-wheeled duck amphibious landing craft. So they were boats. They were boats when they were in the water, and when they came onto the land, wheels came down, and they could run. Um, run up the beaches. So this is what they were practicing in readiness for um, beaching the craft on the sands in the harbour as if they were on the Normandy beaches. Wow. Amazing, isn't it? And, and I guess they were there for quite some time, weren't they? If they built all that infrastructure, they weren't just there for a couple of weeks. No, no. They were there about nine months in total. Wow. Um but um, during during the time they were there, of course, the village changed completely with all these different people uh, arriving there. Um, and the locals, obviously, were quick on the uptake and um, found new jobs, you know, mm. doing things for the visitors. For example, a lady called Greeny Woolchuck washed and ironed 20 U.S. naval uniforms by hand every day for one shilling. Now, that's five pence in the money we have today. And Melville Chester, that's Mary Cannon's father, repaired shoes in his shop on Hillhead, and he made a small fortune out of um, repairing the shoes of the officers and polishing them, etc., etc. Um, so, of course, the locals also benefited from all these exotic goods that the American people brought over with them. Mm -hmm. I know people talk about nylon stockings and, and things, because of course the people here have been on rations for, what, probably um, four years by then. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it, um, it would be wonderful, wouldn't it, to have all the things that you didn't have before. And really, um, it's not unlike the situation we're in at the moment, just to diversify it. Um, you know, we're in lockdown in the same way that they were on rations, and then suddenly somebody comes along and says, wow, you know, you can have all these different things now. Um, anyway, um, the camp base was only there really for um, the period when the D-Day uh, boats were gathering in the south. And once, of course, the June the 6th had come along and they were off, there was no reason for this camp to continue. So um, the, the craft of the people left overnight and suddenly, um, you know, everything goes quiet. And um, I, I suppose the battalion that put the buildings up came and took them all away again and um, everything got back to being a, a sleepy fishing village again, I expect. Yes, it must have been quite quite a crazy kind of nine ten months of it suddenly all, all arriving and happening and then just disappearing yeah. overnight yeah. it's all gone yeah i'm sure it must have been it's very difficult to imagine it because i think this village must have um stretched from behind freshwater lane right across pole bath where the pole bath estate is now and in those fields there down towards the the river at pole bath Bath. I mean, it must have been absolutely massive. I mean, it's like we're, we're used to kind of the, you know, the tourists arriving and going, you know, the peaks and the troughs of people in the villages, but but an overnight exodus is quite, yeah. it would have been quite something to kind of come to terms with, I think. Yeah. 
and I suppose there were regrets, and 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 there were you know people you know quite happy to do the back of them, but uh, <laughs> yes. I don't know that's the supposition. Yeah, definitely <laughs> some mixed emotions going on. But um, yes, I'm sure. So, I think there were. I mean, the the um, I guess there, there would be some uh, some people who were really regretted it, and others that were quite pleased. <laughs> yes. <laughs> again. Yeah, um, and, I think some love stories came amongst it all as well. Undoubtedly. Yeah, because yeah. there were, um, there's other parts of the exhibition, there was um, encampments on, um, uh, above, um, by the lighthouse, behind the lighthouse on the peninsula there, above um, Place Manor. And there was another, I think, that Peter talked about at Trevenal. Mm-hmm. And they were all part of a anti-aircraft uh, gun, these other ones, um, for the protection of Falmouth docks. So you had you had um, anti-aircraft guns in Falmouth, Trevenal, St Anthony's, um, like three prongs. And, of course, they would have still been around, wouldn't they? They were kind of the permanent installation, whereas the D-Day... Um, the D-Day yeah. teams were yeah. the, were the temporary. Much more, much, yeah, much longer-lasting, yeah. yeah. And you mentioned um, the exhibition there, Chris, and do you just want to tell everyone a little bit about the exhibition? Because it's one which we can experience in our daily exercise, I suppose, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, the, you can look online, because um, we have a membership of the um, Heritage Group. Many of, uh, well, some of the people... Are, don't live in St Moore's, they live up country. So any of them who are, are listening, they can access the whole of the exhibition on um, www.moorshubrspg.com, which is already um, up and running. And, um, of course, um, they shorten versions because, of course, the windows in the telephone boxes are very small. So shortened versions of the exhibition will be in the telephone boxes as well. So if you want to take your daily walk, there's one at the bottom of the car park outside the arcade, and the other telephone box is uh, if you walk up um, Hill Head onto the uh, top road and then just turn right, there's a telephone box on the left-hand side, and um, um, the, re- uh, the other part of the exhibition is in there. Excellent. Well, we'll put a link to the mooreshubrspg.com website on the show notes. So if you're uh, listening on the website, as I know a lot of you do, you can just click and, uh, and access that straight away. And um, and Chris, I believe the, the research that the Heritage Group have been doing, you know, kind of in honour of the VE Day um, anniversary, has encompassed some well, looking into the people who are on the War Memorial as well. Yes, that's right. Um, uh, I think the no, 15 people on the War Memorial, and Stuart Hall um, looked into the, the military history of each one of them. And I think there were only two that he couldn't find anything about, and some of them um, are really interesting. There's a rear admiral who lived in, in St. Moore's at um, Sea Riggs, and... Um, uh, People who've been in one one man who was on a boat that went to Dunkirk for the rescue of people um, 
from beaches in, in at Dunkirk. So yeah, there's a really interesting. Uh, two of them had DFCs or you know awards. One had DFC and Bar. So yeah, they make really interesting history um, for anyone who would like to read them. And I believe that you actually discovered a link between one of the people on the war memorial and um, someone who many people may remember living in St Moors. Yes, that's right. Um, um, Ian Henderson was um, uh, lived in St Moors at Greystones on, Triden on Tridenham Road. And the other one was Philip Dark, who retired to St Moors. So I don't think the two of them knew each other until they got thrown together as part of the convoy that set off from Falmouth on um, Operation Chariot, which was the raid on San Lazare. So Ian Henderson was uh, joined the Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve in March 1942, and he was made lieutenant of, in command of um, Fairmile, which was a motor launch, um, Stuart has given me the, all the details of it, HMML 306, it was called. Philip Dark, the one who was retired into St. Moore's eventually, was his sub-lieutenant, so he was like second in command. And they were just one of one boat of a huge a flotilla of boats that uh, took part in this Operation Chariot which was the raid on San Nazaire. Now, up until then, um, at this point, the France had been taken by the Germans, and they were trying to expand their, um, their placement in, in France. At that point, they had a lot of their big destroyers were based in the Baltic, and they were wanting to attack a lot of the, of the boats that were coming across the Atlantic bringing uh, men and provisions and food from America to England. And so, obviously, Saint-Nazaire on the west coast of France was a much better jumping-off point for them than um, somewhere in the Baltic. So they were interested in developing the, the um, port at Saint-Nazaire, the docks there, to house these big German destroyers that they got, the Turkets and the Scharnhaus and World were two of them that I think they wanted to base in San Nazaire. Um, when the British realized this, they thought that the only way that they, they must try and pre prevent this happening, because obviously, um, you know, it would mean the loss of a lot of boats and food and provisions and things if they if they got that operational. So um, they set up this very daring and almost seemed impossible, this, um, this raid. Um, and of course, it was kept secret um, to blow up these docks in, in San Nazaire. So the fleet left Falmouth. And if you go, if you get up the um, some more ferry in Falmouth and you walk along the pier there, um, Prince of Wales Pier, you'll see the, um, the monuments to the people who took part in this raid um, who've been awarded um, uh, bravery. 
medals. Um, just on the on the right hand side as you leave the you leave the dock. So they left Falmouth on the night of the 28th of March in 1942. And it was a large flotilla. It consisted of 611 men, of which 345 were naval personnel. 257 were commandos who were going to be uh, put onto the docks, on the landing in the docks in Saint-Nazaire, and they were each boat was of com commandos was given a task to blow up a particular area of the docks. And so there were 257 commandos, four medics, and five liaison and press officers. Now, the fleet were accompanied by a UK destroyer, the Campbelltown, which was an old boat, and they'd loaded that with explosives, put on a timer, so that when the commandos had been and done their stuff and they got back onto their motor launches and were away from the dock, the, um, the explosives would explode and the Campbelltown would be destroyed, but so would the docks at San Lazare. Um, so that was the plan. Also in the plan was um, involving the RAF. They were to go ahead of the flotilla and take out as many of the uh, gunpoints that were protecting it. However, when they arrived uh, in the early hours of the next morning, so the 29th of March, they um, something had happened. Something had gone wrong with the with the um, aircraft and none of the gunpoints had been taken out at all. So they were met with very heavy fire. Um, and uh, the boat that uh, Ian and Philip were on, the Fair Mile, should have landed its um, commandos on a pier which um, sticks out from the bomber's dock. Um, called the Old Mole, and when they got there, another boat had caught fire and was floundering around, and they were being attacked all the time by the, the, the German soldiers on land, um, and they found it impossible to land. They'd already lost quite a few of the men off their boat, killed by, by this gunfire. And so, in the end, reluctantly, Ian Henderson decided he had to withdraw. Now, they had a plan to meet up afterwards at two particular um, locations in the Atlantic. So, with a bit of nifty seamanship, because they, he had, Ian Henderson had to avoid all of these gunpoints that were busy shooting at them all the time, um, he left the the dock, and he probably had the fewest casualties of any of the boats that went there. Um, and they got to the meeting point um, and in the darkness still, but they could see ahead of them the shapes of five German destroyers. And of course, the destroyers were much bigger than any of the boats that the British flotilla contained. So one, one boat called the Jaguar, one German destroyer called the Jaguar, came towards them to investigate what they 
could obviously see from the position they were in and started firing at Ian and, and Philip's boat. In this battle that was fought, Ian Henderson was killed by a direct hit and with the same hit, Philip Stark was injured and unconscious. So the sergeant um, next in command, Tommy Durant, took command and fought very bravely. Um, kept being asked by the people on the German boat, uh, do you surrender, do you surrender? And he kept saying no and fought on very bravely until eventually he was killed at his gunpoint. And after the war, the captain of the German destroyer Jaguar recommended Tommy Durant for a VC. And that was the first time that the German officer had recommended a English officer for such an award. In the end, um, they did have to surrender. And um, eventually, they did hear the Campbelltown explode. It was at eight and a half hours late, but nevertheless, uh, it did flood the docks and the, the um, Operation Chariot was considered a success. So of the 611 men who set off, 237 returned home, 168 were killed and 200 were captured including Philip Dark, who had recovered sufficiently from um, his concussion and um, along with the others was taken prisoner of war. Christine, that's a, an amazing story, isn't it? And to to think you've you've uncovered it, or the you know the the some Justin Samoa's heritage group have uncovered it all simply due to one name on the war memorial. It's it's amazing to think yeah. what stories lie there, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, and this, this is a, a, it is a really good story, but there are several others associated with um, you know with other um, other people on the war memorial. Yeah, definitely one for us for us all to go go and check out. But um, just before we say goodbye, Chris, Chris, if anyone out there is um thinking, I'd like to get involved with with what the St Justin St Moore's Heritage Group are doing. Could you tell us a bit more about the group and how they could get in touch with you? The St Justin St Moore's Heritage Group. We started in two thousand and seven, and as I said before, we have an annual exhibition each year. If you'd like to become a member, um, you can um, give me a ring on um, 01326-270-379 and I will send you a membership form. Um, we do have uh, monthly meetings where there is a, usually a speaker or some um, a speaker about some item of local heritage or with historical interest. Um, we've had uh, Rob Wing talking about fishing locally and um, um, James Thomas talking about farming in the area, things like that. Um, obviously, we're not 
operating at the moment because of the lockdown for the coronavirus. Um, we do have also a website where you can access a membership form, and that is um, www.sjsm, that's St. Justin's St. Moore's initials, sjsm-heritage.com or .co.uk, whichever. Okay, and uh, we'd be delighted to, to welcome you. Um, the meetings are free if you're a member, and there's a small charge if you're not. So um, that's, that's what we're about, and uh, you would be very welcome to join us. Thanks, Chris. Well, hopefully we'll, we'll get you a few more members, um, because yeah. that's, it's been fascinating hearing all the research the group's been doing, and, um, and I will certainly be popping over to the website to have a look at, um, at the, the wider exhibition. So thanks very much for being yeah. on the show. Thank you very much, Chloe. If you'd like to know more about the exhibitions or the St Justin's St Moore's Heritage Group, we've added all the relevant links and contact details on the show notes. Just go to rosenpodcast.com and click the box that says show notes next to this episode. We've got some great interviews coming up over the coming weeks, covering topics as diverse as guiding, diplomatic service and homeschooling. But Lindsay and I are still on the lookout for more people to interview. So if you'd like to come on the show and talk about pretty much anything at all, we're interested. The first step is to drop us an email to rosalindpodcast at gmail.com with your ideas and any questions you've got. Everything we put out is recorded in advance. Nothing goes out live. You don't even have to book a time and uh, and do a recording with me. If you've got a recipe, a poem, a story, you can record it at home and send us the MP3 file or just email it in and we can read it out for you. I hope this will help us all feel a little less alone and connected in our wonderful community. And if you want to make sure you hear the rest of the shows, then bookmark rosenpodcast.com and look for us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your usual podcast app and subscribe. Be kind and stay safe.